If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of uh, 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can follow along with the insert that's found in your bulletin. We are week six into our study of this ancient letter written by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Peter and preserved for not just the first century church which first heard it, but for the church of Jesus Christ for all time until our Lord and Savior returns. As you think back with me for a moment on these past five weeks and what we've looked at so far briefly, really just the content of chapter one, what I want you to see as you look back on chapter one, as you think back on the last five weeks, I want you to see that Peter has spilt a lot of ink establishing and reminding the church simply of who they are in Christ, of what Jesus has done and what that means for their identity. They are, you are, Ascension Prez, Exiles, born into a living hope, sons and daughters of a holy father, bought with the precious lamb of God. It's been a lot of good news. Dense good news that is needed to fuel fickle hearts like yours and mine. Good news that needs to go deep, deep into our hearts. Well, our passage for today, uh, before I read it, our passage for today is, is in some sense the final foundational gospel brick. The final foundational gospel brick that's being laid. Not that Peter won't return to the gospel. He'll return to it again and again. He won't let us forget it. But after these verses, Peter gets specific in a way that he has not been specific before. Specific on what an exilic, holy life really looks like. As citizens of a nation, as employees with, with bosses that we're accountable to, as wives and husbands. That's where he's going. But today, we're going to look at this final gospel brick, wonderful passage. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word and listen as I read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. Built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, 
and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to start this morning with a single word. The word is belonging. Belonging. That word describes something that we all deep down desire. When I think about that word, I think about my teenage years, my how I wanted to belong when I was a teenager. Many of you remember that well. Some of you are teenagers and you're experiencing it right now. Remember that was part of the joy for me of being on an athletic team. Because being on an athletic team as a teenager meant that, that, that I had been chosen that I was part of something bigger than myself, bigger than I alone could accomplish, and yet I was being used in some way to accomplish that goal. It meant that I had a brotherhood and a camaraderie with with guys that I might not normally have hung out with, except for our common purpose. I think in our day and age, CrossFit has tapped into this. CrossFit has tapped into this human longing. Some of you just know this very well. CrossFit, those folks, those, and some of you are these folks, these are not just fitness centers. These are communities of crazy people who do crazy things to their bodies and encourage one another in that pain. Maybe for you, for some of you, the word belonging brings to mind family. And you've got the t-shirts to prove it. I've seen some of your t-shirts, your family reunion t-shirts. It's wonderful. For some of you, I recognize that when you think of the word belonging, family is the last thing that you think about. Well, Peter writes something this morning to the church here, first to this church in the first century, composed, remember, of ethnic Jews, as well as everyone else, Gentiles we call them. This new church composed of Jew and Gentile suffering for their faith in Jesus. And Peter writes something to them in these verses, which is incredibly profound. He says to them, you belong. You belong to God. You are his treasure. 
And not only that, but he is building you into something special as he dwells with you, something special with one another, with those that you are in life and community together with. I want to show you the richness of how he does this for the first century church that he writes to. And then think about here as we sit in Edmonds, Washington in 2019 about why we need to hear this and what difference it makes in our lives. Two things for us to meditate our hearts on, to hang our thoughts on, and the first is this. You are being built into a spiritual house. It's very similar. There's an overlap to last week when I said that God is building us together, we didn't really delve deeply into these waters. God is building you. You are being built, church, into a spiritual house. Verse five, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Now let's think for just a few minutes about what that means. The word house, you think about that word and it probably doesn't bring to your mind any significant associations. Maybe you think about the residence that you live in. You think about the materials that went into building that structure. And so when Peter uses the phrase spiritual house, it doesn't really do anything for you or for me in particular. It's an image without much context. But what you need to see and realize is that that wasn't the case for these first century Jew and Gentiles. When they heard the word house in connotation with God and particularly with the phrases that come after this verse, they would have thought the house of God. They would have thought the temple. For centuries upon centuries, the temple was the centerpiece of Yahweh's dwelling with Israel. And you didn't have to be a Jew to know that. Any Gentile who had spent any time in Jerusalem or in that area knew that the temple was significant in the life of God's people, crucial in the life of God's people. So for the Jews, the temple was the place of of God's presence. It was the place of God's dwelling. It was the place of atonement and, and forgiveness. For the Gentile, it was largely a place of exclusion. And that's not to say that a Gentile couldn't receive forgiveness. But for the Gentile, the outer courts were open to them but not the inner courts. For them, the temple was, at least in some respect, a place of not fully belonging. And so what Peter proclaims here to the church is that God is constructing a new temple. And it's not made of inert material, it's made of living people. It's alive and growing and it's where God now dwells in a spiritual house made up of his people. When you consider the history of the world, this is the first time Christianity is the first religion to need no temple, to need no priests 
to need no altars. No wonder the Romans didn't understand these people and misinterpreted so much of what they did. Now let's just pause right there and ask, how did this come about? How did this new temple, this spiritual house of living stones come about? Well, it came about through the living stone, right? That's what our passage begins. Through the person and work of Jesus. Peter here helps us understand and see Jesus in the Old Testament as he quotes Isaiah in verse 6 and then Psalm 118 in verse 7. Here is, here is Peter the rock, the one on whom the church is being built, giving testimony to the stone the living stone, the rock of ages. We studied the book of Daniel not too long ago. Remember the stone that rolled and crumbled the statue of glory in Nebuchadnezzar's dream? The stone. The stone is Jesus. This this stone chosen by God, precious to him and yet rejected by men, offending many, causing them to stumble. Jesus is the cornerstone of this spiritual house that is being built. And we sang of the cornerstone. What is a cornerstone? A cornerstone in ancient construction is the crucial stone. It's the first stone to be laid. It had to be perfectly cut with perfect lines because every other stone is going to be laid on top of it. Every other stone is going to be lined up with this stone. It sets the whole of the structure. And all of the structure's weight rests Upon it. And Jesus says, This spiritual house is built on Jesus, the person and work of Jesus. A person and work that is not just for our salvation. Yes, it is for our salvation. But this person and work of Jesus that is the template for a new way to be human a new way to live life, a new way to relate to God, a new way of relating to the world. That's how we got here to this spiritual house that we are being built up into. And getting back to the imagery of this building, this new temple, this spiritual house, this was a big deal because Peter is ascribing to this church of Jew and Gentile what was uniquely up until this point a Jewish identity. One they had possessed for thousands of years, and now it's open to all who look in faith to the Lord Jesus. Peter is not only reinterpreting what those new things are, but he's doing As he's doing so, he's elevating the church to Israel's status. Why did that matter? We've already talked about this church. They're scattered all through Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. They're suffering. They're struggling for the sake of Jesus. And suddenly Peter says, you belong. In fact, you're at the very heart of God. You're at the very heart of God of what he's doing in the world. You don't need to be in Jerusalem. You don't even need to be a Jew. 
Gentiles had heard the stories of Yahweh. They had knew the privileged status of the Jewish nation. They had experienced the restrictions at the temple that only let them go so far. But now, now they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. And to a first century church who knew their Old Testament, they heard these echoes in that phrase. We need a little help. So I'm going to give you a little help. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's. It was because the Lord loved you and kept his oath that he swore to to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand. That's why you're chosen. A chosen race. God's love placed on you, I've told you this before, but I'll tell it to you again, God's love placed on you is not a result of or dependent upon anything in you. As one of my seminary professors wrote once, you are not a choice people. (laughs) You're a chosen people. After my ninth grade summer, I had grown several inches, and I remember coming back to school in 10th grade and being approached, being sought out by the JV basketball coach because he wanted me to play on his team. They were desperate, yes, they were desperate. But I had grown like six inches over the summer, so suddenly I was six foot three and a sophomore in high school, and and they needed me, they wanted me, and so he chose me for the team. But I know if I hadn't have grown, he would have taken one look at my shot out on the playground and would have said, forget about that kid. But God's not like that. He just loves you because you are you. You don't need to perform. You don't need to grow or get your act together so that he'll love you more. You, church, are a chosen race, chosen in love. That's the first phrase that would have rang in these people's ears. And then there's Exodus 19.5. The Lord said to his people Israel, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak God says, Yahweh says to Moses, to the Israelites. And now Peter says, church, you're a chosen race. You're a holy, royal priesthood. 
No longer do you need the blood of goats and bulls to atone for sin. Our sacrifices to God are no longer those bloody messes, but they're sacrifices of of praise, Hebrews says. They're sacrifices of our lives as living sacrifices, Paul says to the Romans in Romans chapter 12. We are part of a new kingdom with a new king, and in Jesus we have boldness and access. You are a royal priesthood. and you're a holy nation, corporate identity that transcends race and color and heritage and socioeconomic status. You see, as as Peter throws these three labels, as he speaks them over the New Testament church, I I want you to feel the gravity and the revolutionary implications of what he was saying. In light of all that had gone before, You belong. You are mine. So what about us? Well, if you're here this morning and you're looking in faith to the Lord Jesus as your only hope in this life and in the next, then no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done, no matter what you may or may not be able to accomplish, you belong. You belong to God. You belong here. You belong to one another. And if you're here this morning because you have been longing for a place to belong to, you have been been longing that you might belong to God, you're, you're in the right place. Because Jesus just says, come to me. Believe in me. And all the richness of all that I've spoken to all of my people for all of time is yours. It's your identity now. And so come to me and rest in who I am. Remember, as the church, you are being built up. This is a construction project, so to speak. Right? There needs to be movement. There needs to be change. And, and, and what I mean by that is that this isn't this thing we call church, this thing we call worship. This isn't a once a week social club or a convention where you come together for a brief time only to return to your private lives. No, this is, this is a counter-cultural community It's a countercultural community of Jesus lovers who are supposed to be living life together, who are supposed to be together in each other's homes at times, knowing one another, praying for one another as the Lord gives us opportunity. And I recognize you can't be in everybody's home at once. You can't know everybody's junk at once, but you ought to know somebody's junk in here. And you ought to be praying for them. You ought to be calling them in the week and saying, I prayed for you this morning. Can we go out to coffee? I'd like to pray for you in person. Don't let Western individualism taint the life of this church, taint the life of our church, of the church, any more than it already has. Western individualism says, well, you got your lane, I got my lane. Yeah, we're on the same highway, but 
Don't merge into my lane. Instead, as we talked about last week, our growth in grace is attached to this life, to our life together as a community. And so in that sense, as you're being built up, we ought to be being built in. We ought to be being built in. Finding your spot, and we talk a lot about this, about finding your spot in this corporate entity, which is an organization as well as an organism, right? Where do you fit into this corporate entity? But I also would agree, finding your spot in people's lives. When was the last time you were in the home of someone in this room asking questions of one another like, what's the Lord doing in your life? How can I pray for you? Can we pray together right now? And I know that's hard. You've you've got to create margins in your life in order to accommodate that kind of thing, in order to accommodate this spiritual construction project of being built together as living stones. I know you've got work responsibilities. I know you've got family obligations. I know that you need you some me time. But please, don't let the hustle cause you to miss the beauty of what God's doing in his church. Community groups, yes. Community groups are great for this. So helpful for this. And I know so many of you are involved in that, and I commend you for that. But don't even stop there. Don't even stop there. Someone said something at community group. You really didn't get to press into it. You really didn't get to pray for them. Hey, can we have coffee? I just want to follow up what you said at community group. I want to pray for you. Practice being the people of God. We digest this, I think, in a slightly different way than the first century digested it. Yeah, we need to know we belong. We need to know our identity in Jesus. But we need to return and and look more like the first century church in regards to how they practiced their life together, how they were the people of God. And it's hard. In this day and age, in Seattle, Washington of all places, in a city of introverts and rain, oh my goodness, it's hard. But you're being built together into a spiritual house. That's the first truth. Second one is not near as long. Second one is this. You are a house built to declare his praise. You're a house built to declare his praise. We've talked about this before, the obvious fact that we praise what we enjoy, right? Whether it be football, whether it be new shoes, whether it be the finest yellow curry that we have ever tasted in our lives, we praise what we love, what we've experienced This passage reminds us that we're not just a chosen people being built up into this insular house of privileged community and identity where we can support and bear one another's burdens. Yes, we are, but, except for that insular part, our God is a giving God, and he calls us to give what we have. So the purpose of this blood-bought 
spirit-influenced people is to be on mission together. Last week, I read our mission statement, right? To be a community of worshiping, maturing, and multiplying disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit and for the hope of God's kingdom. Last week, we focused on the maturing part. Peter says here, don't forget, as you mature, multiply. Declare his praises. Declare his praises. In other words, don't declare a system. Don't declare a superior world religion. Declare him, the one who saved you, the one who walks with you, the one who hears your prayers and answers them every day. Declare the one who has called you out of darkness into light. We've been so helpfully reminded of this in weeks past as we've worked through this book in our discipleship class. I know many of you have been part of it. Some of you haven't been able to be because you're teachers. I want to read a quote from that book. It's from a chapter we just looked at recently. He says, this kind of effervescent witness is actually God's design for his people all along. Simply put, God has saved us to praise him. We're called to declare God's praises to the world. So if we're not faithfully proclaiming the gospel to those around us, it's owing to the fact that we're not overflowing in praise to God. If evangelism doesn't exist, it's because worship doesn't. Our gospel silence isn't because our mouths are broken, it's because our hearts are broken. And here we come full circle to where we began. The only way that it's going to fix broken hearts is for hearts to really know who they are, to really understand their identity. We must truly encounter Jesus. We must hear and digest and remind one another of our lost estate without him and of our standing and purpose in him. And that's why you commit yourself to this gathering, and that's good. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has chosen you. Jesus is building you. You are the people of God. You are a treasured spiritual house where his presence will dwell with you till the end of the age. And if all that is true, then may his deeds, his power, his wisdom, his mercy, his glory, his grace, and his love be on full display in our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this exhortation, for this imperative, but also this indicative of who we are, of what you have done, and how that changes. It ought to change every fiber of our being, every priority of our life. 
So Father, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, take it and apply it in the lives of your people as you see fit. For the glory of your name, in Jesus' name I pray, amen.